0: I want to talk to us this evening about a social pandemic, and um, we know that we've been for the last, uh, this is our fourth week in the series, and we, the reason that we did it is because we are not primarily financial beings, we are not primarily physical beings, yes we're financial, yes we are physical, and there's been a, there's been a financial impact, there's been a physical impact for all of us through this, through this pandemic. I believe that we are primarily created as social beings so from the most quiet shy introverted person all the way to the other end of the spectrum wherever you sit on that spectrum you were created primarily as a social being in other words uh, the biggest impact to come out of this time this this pandemic is not going to be financial it's not going to be physical as big as those tolls are the biggest impact unless we do something about it will be the social impact that it has on your life and the impact that it has on my life because remember we, we spoke about newton's first law of motion an, an object for the northwood boys you would have learnt about this the an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon at the same speed and in the same direction unless acted upon by an external force right science 101 newton's first law our social lives the social aspects of our lives will continue in the same direction and at the same speed unless acted upon by an external force. Unless we do something about it, the the unhealthy social cycles that we find ourselves in will keep coming back and keep repeating on themselves unless we do something about it, unless we act in it with an external force. And so we've tried to give us some building blocks and some external things that we can put in place to address the unhealthy cycles of our social aspects. And so we spoke about the first week, peer relationships and marriages. And in the second week, we spoke about power relationships and parenting, and then Rich spoke about decision making and finances last week, and tonight I want to close out by speaking about community, and I think that we have to remind ourselves what true community is, and keep reminding ourselves to value community, keep reminding ourselves to value community, because here's what I see happening, Uh, I, 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 I see happening, we are losing our ability not only our ability, but also our desire to be together. So it's one thing to lose an ability to be together. You can gain an ability. If you can't catch a ball, somebody can teach you to catch a ball, right? If you don't have a desire to catch a ball, you never will. So it's one thing to lose our ability to be a community and our ability to be together. But if you lose our desire to be together, we've we got, we got a problem. We're in a problem. And so I want to make a case this evening for why I believe we should still value community and what you can do to break an unhealthy social cycle that perhaps you might identify in your life this evening. A while back, I did a fairly comprehensive two-day first aid course. And I'm not sure if this has ever happened to you, but I came out of the course and I thought to myself that I knew everything about level one first aid. And so I was looking for opportunities to, uh, get to, to use my newly acquired first aid skills. And so I was driving down the freeway, waiting for an accident, while spending more time watching around, to see if there was an accident so I could be first on scene. I could use this newly acquired first aid skills. My kids would fall out of a tree and they're crying. And normally I would let the kids cry and then they can come and find me if they are really hurt, right? I'm a good dad. And now, as soon as he was crying, I was running to see what was taking place because maybe first aid dad was needed. And so I was looking for a place to unload these newly acquired skills. I'm not sure if you've ever done that. And a couple of weeks later, I had a situation to use it, which I, which I didn't, wasn't expecting. And I arrived on a scene where a wall had collapsed on a person. And so when I got there, uh, first aid teaches you the first thing you do is assess the scene. So I stood back and I assessed the scene. And what I could see was happened is this guy was in a ditch. The wall had collapsed on him. And he was pinned up to his waist in sand and rubble and concrete. He couldn't move. He was pinned. Uh, he wasn't in agonizing pain. He wasn't screaming. He was in discomfort. But he was his, his pain was manageable. Uh, what it was immediately obvious to me was that the, the rest of the wall... Uh, any time now fall on him as well. In, in other words, his life was in danger. Uh, if, if the rest of their wall came down while he was stuck, it, it, his life was in danger. And so he had three friends that were busy digging him out, and they were working frantically, moving bricks and moving sand to get him out. And as they got closer and closer to him, as, 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 they, as they dug deeper, uh, they started to free him slowly but surely, and they started to move him. And as soon as they started moving him, he started screaming. Suddenly his mild discomfort turned to agonizing pain, he was in such pain, he was saying, stop it, just stop it, don't touch me, it's too sore, what actually happened was his femurs were both broken, both of his legs were broken, at the top, snapped in half, when he was held in the sand and the rubble, uh, that had broken him, it was holding him, but they were holding it in place, as soon as his friends started digging and moving him, he started moving, and he became aware, something's not right, my legs are broken, and the pain increased from a two to a ten, and he was saying to his friends, you've got to stop. It's too sore. His friends are now stuck in a position. Either I stop because I'm causing my friend pain. Either I stop digging and I let him be not in pain. But I, if I do that, his life's in danger because the rest of this wall is going to come down. In other words, the choice that they had to make was I've got to keep causing my friend short-term pain because if I don't cause him short-term pain, he could die. He could very well die. Um, anyway, long story short, we got him out. they got him out of the hole. I was able to make some really poor makeshift splints. I need to talk to the manufacturers about that. Uh, Really poor um, makeshift first aid splints. He got to safety and then uh, we called an ambulance. Off he went to hospital. They set the legs and sorted everything out on a path to healing. That's a great story about first aid, John. What does it mean for us this evening? Friends, I think there's many of us in the same situation and we're not even aware of it. People don't realize that their legs are broken because they're not moving. We think that we are secure because we are still and things are nice and close, but what we don't realize is that the things we put around us to make us feel safe and prevent us from feeling pain are actually masking our true condition. We have broken legs and our life is in danger. My first point in making a case for why we should still value community is that it causes pain. Community causes us pain. But it takes short-term pain to get us out of our collapsed walls and our false sense of security and put us in a place of first safety and then a path to healing. Too many people I see get angry with community, get angry with their friends, get angry with their family when they cause them pain. Because as humans, our natural uh, proclivity is we would rather avoid pain. We don't want to cause pain, we'd rather avoid pain. And so when, when people cause us pain, we get angry and we get upset with them. And we lash out at them, not realizing that we are stuck in our collapsed walls of our social system, our legs are broken, and our lives are in danger, and actually our friends causing us pain is the very thing that's sometimes going to lead us to safety, and then on a path to healing. What a community does is a community moves us, not because they want to hurt us, but because they realize the danger that we're in. A community helps us push through pain, because on the other side of pain is safety and healing, so I'm not making a case this evening for People hurting each other simply for the sake of hurting each other. I'm not saying that we should go around hurting each other just for the sake of it. Uh, What I am saying is that there sometimes is a necessary pain that we need to push through in in order to find ourselves in a place of safety and into a place of healing. If you're visiting with us this evening, I want you to know that this is not a family uh, that tolerates abuse in any form, any way, shape, or form. And if you're in a relationship that is causing pain, uh, unnecessary pain, uh, you Go back and listen to the first two weeks where we spoke about relationships in this series on our websites, on our podcasts, and get out of an abusive, uh, of an abusive situation. So we don't tolerate abuse in this family. But I also want you to know, if you're visiting with us this evening, that uh, this is a family that pain lives in. Pain lives in this family because sometimes pain is necessary to get us on a path to get us to safety and to lead us on a path to healing. The people we build community with cause us necessary pain. You can't run from it, and you can't avoid it. The second thing that I believe community does is it exposes us. It's a very good start to a case for community, pain and exposure. Those are the two things you want to embrace, right? Pain and exposure. Good start to the case, John. You know how I know it causes exposure? Because it exposes things in me. That's how I know. Also, it exposed things in the 12 men that followed Jesus. Here's what happens. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20, says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, that's James and John, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, it's for those to whom it has been prepared by my father and when the ten heard, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were really upset with the two brothers. So here, here we've got James and John, two of Jesus' best abangan, the two, two of Jesus' best traumas, his best friends. And what they've done, if you read the story, they've got their mom to go and ask their boss for a promotion on their behalf. I don't know if you know those people. If you know those people whose mom or dad goes to the coach off on the sidelines and said, can my son captain the team? Can my daughter captain the team? Have you been there with those people who's... Uh, you just make an extra coffee for the boss and, and include a cupcake with it, not because they want to be kind, but because there's something that they need, something that they want. So what is being exposed in James and John yeah, is something called ambition. It's underhandedness. And that, that underhandedness, that ambition, it always lived in James and John. If they would stayed at home with their mom, it never would have been exposed. Only once it's been exposed can they deal with it. If they'd stayed with their mom, it never would have been exposed. It does the same thing for Peter. If you'd spoken to Peter before you'd been with Jesus and the disciples and you'd asked him, are you angry and are you a coward? He would have said no and no, I'm definitely not angry and I'm definitely not a coward. And for three years being with Jesus, what, what it exposes in him is an anger and a cowardice that he never knew was there. He's exposed as an anger man. He's exposed as a coward simply by being in community. friends some of our worst traits our worst habits and our worst characteristics are hidden from ourselves we can't see them it's like bad breath you can't smile your own bad breath unless you're wearing a mask that's what the pandemic has taught us but your worst habits traits and characteristics are hidden from you and it takes a deep relationship to bring those things out it takes a deep relationship to expose those things I, when I was a young man if you'd spoken to me and asked me up. If I was selfish, I would have said no. Ten times out of ten, I would have said I'm not selfish. And then I got married. And after about a year of marriage, I thought to myself, "She's being married has made me selfish. It's caused me to be, become selfish. No, it hadn't. All it had done was it had, it, revealed, it had revealed a selfishness that was always in my heart. And so because it revealed it, I then was able to deal with it. And so I, I dealt with it. And then a couple of years later, I had kids. And after a year or two of having kids, I sat down and thought to myself, "She's having kids has made me selfish all over again. No, it hasn't. All it was happening was that a deeper relationship had revealed the deeper and exposed the deeper selfishness that still lived in my heart. See, friends, the deeper the relationship, the deeper the exposure. Some of us never have our worst habits, traits, and characteristics dealt with because we're not in community, and so therefore they never get exposed. And if they're not exposed, we, don't even, we never address them. And so we walk around 40, 50, 60, 70 years never having our bad breath addressed, never just having a simple breath mint because nobody's ever told us. And nobody's ever told us because we haven't been deep enough invested into a community where it can become exposed in us. The deeper the relationship, the deeper the, deeper the exposure. See, so we, It's very easy for us to judge people whose, uh, whose worst habits, characteristics, and traits are buried shallow because it comes out very easily, right? And so it's very easy to judge them. You're angry, you're selfish, and you, you are, are, are a coward. <laughs> Those of us who, in whom it is buried deep, It's still there, it's just buried deep. It's our job to invest deeply into deep and push ourselves into deep relationships where those things can be exposed. Without community, we sit with a false sense of security, with no pain, with nothing being exposed, unaware that we're losing our ability and sometimes our desire even to be in community with other people. And we're in danger of losing the core function of what makes us a society in the first place. We are a society because we are social. Okay, so we start with pain and exposure. Let's look at uh, a more pleasant ad. Number three, community adds completeness of life. Community adds completeness of life. In the book of Revelation, the same John that we spoke about, Jesus' friend, was was with him. The same John is uh, is exiled to an island called Patmos, and God gives him a vision of a new heaven and a new earth being created into the future, being recreated as it was always meant to be when it was created the first time. And there's a new city uh, that is built, and he gets a picture of what the future will look like. And he says this, he sees this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide, and he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and high as it is long, and it's as wide and high as it is long, wide and high as it is long, in other words, its length, its breadth, and its depth were equal, L-B-H, length, breadth, and height are equal in this, in this city that, that, that John sees, and there's, there's a lot of symbolism and um, imagery that takes place in the book of Revelation, and I'm, I'm not here to talk about all of that this evening, But Martin Luther King comments on this scripture, and he says what's remarkable for him about this new city is its completeness. He says that it's complete because it is equal in length and breadth and in height. And what he says is that length of life is our relationship to ourselves, breadth of life is our relationship to others, and height of life is our relationship to God. As you love yourself, love your neighbor, and love your Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. The city that John sees is equal in its length and how you love yourself. It's equal in its breadth and how you love others, and it's equal in its heart, how you love God. For us to live complete lives on earth, we need our relationships to have equal length and breadth and heart. Length, length of life is a relationship with yourself. It means that you love yourself, and more than that, you learn to love yourself. Sometimes we need to learn to love ourselves. We don't just automatically love ourselves. Now, Jesus says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you flip that around slightly, change the order of those words. It says, as you love yourself, so love your neighbor. As you love yourself, so love your neighbor. And I think one of, the, one of the reasons very few people love their neighbor is because they don't love themselves. If you never love yourself, you will un, be unable to love your neighbor, right? As you love yourself, so love your neighbor. In other words, if you, as you don't love yourself, so you don't love your neighbor. It, it, that's how it works. Love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. If you don't love yourself, you don't have length of life. To love yourself means to care for yourself and to enjoy yourself. Do you, do you enjoy yourself? Do you enjoy your own company? Do you enjoy being with yourself? I can promise you, if you don't enjoy being with yourself, people, other people are going to find it very hard to enjoy being with you. To love yourself also means to accept yourself. And to accept yourself is you, you accept your tools and you accept your limitations. Guess what will happen when you love yourself by accepting your tools. You will be content. You will be content with what God has put in your hands to build with. You won't be looking at the tools in somebody else's hands and wishing, I had those tools. When you accept your tools, accept the tools that God has put in your hands to work with, you will have a desire to be the best with those tools. If I've got an accountant doing my books, I don't want his desire to to be, I want to do the best heart surgery. That's not what I want his desire to be. I want him to accept the tools that he's got in his hand, and his desire must be to be the best accountant. Otherwise, I want somebody else doing my books. And it's the same with you. Love yourself by accepting the tools that God has put in your hands because when you accept that, you'll be content and you, uh, you, will want to, you will have a desire to be the best at doing what God has put in your hands to do. Here's what will happen when you love yourself by accepting your limitations. You will free yourself from a curse. When we don't accept our own limitations, we constantly compare ourselves to others. If I have, I have a limitation, I'm unable to do certain things, Right? If I don't accept that limitation in myself, I'm under a curse to con- constantly be striving, constantly be something that I'm not, something that is beyond my gra- I'm constantly g- reaching and grasping for something that is outside of my grasp, and actually that's the very, of, the very definition of a curse. Chasing after something that I can't catch, that's a curse. When you accept your limitations, you will free yourself from that curse. Length of life is about loving yourself, caring for, enjoying, and accepting yourself breadth of life is loving others. Jesus is talking with some of the teachers of the law in Luke chapter 10, and he asks one of the, teacher, one of the teachers of the law, asks Jesus, he says to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus looks at him and he says, you're a teacher of the law, you've understand it and you've read it, what do you think it says? How do you, how do you read it? And so the, the, the teacher answers him and he says, uh, you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself, and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and Jesus looks at him and he says, you, you've perceived it right. You, you have read the entire law right. And Jesus is actually surprised by his answer. He says, you, you, you've done it right. You've read it right. All you need to do now is go and do it. What's the first question the guy asks him? Who's my neighbor? If, if I have to love my neighbor in order to inherit eternal life, who is my neighbor? What's the, what's the actual question that he's asking? He's asking, what is the minimum amount of people that I have to love in order to inherit eternal life? What's the minimum I have to do, right? What is the standard for getting into the team? Because I need to know what the minimum requirement is, not what what the most is. I just need to know what the bare minimum is so that I can do that in order to get into the team. Friends, don't don't we do the same thing? Don't we ask the same question actually in our hearts? What is the least amount of people that I have to care for? What is the least that I have to give? (laughs) What is the least I have to be with people and love them? What is the least I can get away with? G.K. Chesterton, who's an author and a theologian, he says this. The Bible tells us to love our neighbors, but it also tells us to love our enemies, probably because generally they're the same people. Our neighbors and our enemies are generally the same people. Here's what will happen if you begin to love both your neighbors and your enemies well. You will begin to heal. You will begin to heal psychologically and neurologically. The only way to heal from relational pain and relational wounds is in a healthy relationship. We know this. We do this all the time. When somebody upsets us, we go and seek out a relationship to heal us. The problem for many of us is that we seek out a toxic relationship. We seek out an unhealthy relationship to try and get healing from a relational pain. And it's, it's the relational equivalent of trying to eat more McDonald's to be more healthy. That's the equivalent of what we're doing. We understand it. The problem is that we do the, we, we, we go to the wrong relationship. The only way to heal from a relational pain and a relational wound is in a healthy relationship. Some of humanity's deepest wounds come from relationships. Your mother, your father, your family, a failed marriage, a failed friendship, a toxic friendship. That's why it's so tragic when I see people who have been hurt relationally put up walls around themselves, people won't get in, they won't be able to hurt me again. If I put up these walls, they won't get in and they won't hurt me again. These walls will protect me, not realizing that those walls are creating a false sense of security, they're masking their true condition, they're sitting with broken legs, unable to move, and never having their worst habits, characteristics, and traits exposed, unaware that their lives are in danger because they've got broken legs. When you love your neighbor and your enemy, you will begin to heal relationally, and you'll add breath to your life. We have to move beyond self-interest, loving ourselves, beyond humanity, loving others, and we have to reach up to love God. Here's what loving God well will add to your life, credibility. When you, when you love God well, when you, you will live as he wants you to live. When you live as he wants you to live, you'll have integrity. Here's what it means to have integrity. If I've got integrity, it means that what I say and what I believe lines up with what I do. You can draw a straight line between what I say, what I believe, and what I do. They line up. If, they, if, they, if those things are out of line, if what I say and I believe is not what I do, I'm not a man of integrity. And if I'm not a man of integrity, I don't have any credibility. And when I love God well, I will have credibility because I will have integrity. My life will serve as an example to my family, to my friends, and to those around me of what a Christian should look like, of what it means to love God if I have credibility because I love God well. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. He was another theologian and author. If you live from Monday morning to Saturday night in the same way that you would live if there was no God, you are a practical atheist. You are a practical atheist. So you might not be a theoretical atheist. You might say there is no God. You might say, in theory, there is a God, and in theory, I love him. That's all good and well. But if you don't live what you believe and what you say, if you don't live in the same line, you're a practical atheist. The way that you you practice your life says that you don't believe there is a God. I want length, I want breadth, and I want heart. Without these three, I'm not getting the full benefit of community. Equal in length, equal in breadth, equal in heart. See, friends, community causes us pain, but it takes short-term pain to get us out of our collapsed walls and, with, and our false sense of security. It reveals our true condition, broken legs, and it takes us. It saves our life. It takes us to a place of safety and puts us on a path to healing. Community causes exposure. But it exposes some of our worst habits, characteristics, and traits so that we are able to deal with them and move on from them. But community is a place that relational completeness is formed, equal in length, where I love myself, equal in breadth, where I love my neighbor and my enemy, and equal in heart, where I love God well. Community begins to allow me to have a complete life. Here's one step that I want you to take this week, one step. And I'm going to give you two options. And uh, Depending on where you are in your life, you can choose one of them. Number one, ask for help. So we've spoken about the first three weeks, marriages and peer relationships, power relationships and parenting, decision-making and finances. If you're struggling in any, any one of those three areas, let the, let the external force that you apply to break the health, unhealthy cycle be reaching out. Ask somebody for help. Speak to your life group leader. Speak to uh, a pastor. Speak to one of us at the church here. Let the external force that you apply be reaching out and asking for help to somebody. If you're not in that place, here's what I want you to do. I would like you to take one step out of your comfort zone this week. One step. I'm I'm not asking you to violate your faith or your conscience. I'm asking you to take one step out of your comfort zone. Be vulnerable with somebody. Be a safe place for somebody. Accept an invitation from someone. Give an invitation to someone. Push into a relationship. Push into community. One step. Take one step out of your comfort zone this week. Can you stand with me, friends?